0: Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, a podcast by the Public Transport Association Australia, New Zealand. Each episode, we interview a top female executive from the public transport sector in Australia, New Zealand and around the world. If you're interested in leadership, workplace gender equality or building clean, green transport for the future, this is the podcast for you.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining me on this episode of Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Batsis, the Executive Director of Future Mobility from member organization, the Victorian Department of Transport. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by Judith Sturman. Judith is the Executive Group Manager of Transport Canberra, part of Transport Canberra and City Services. Throughout her career, Judith has demonstrated exceptional focus and discipline in transport operations and customer service delivery, working across heavy rail, buses, and light rail in the UK and throughout Australia. Judith is also on the board of directors for the Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand, or PTA ANZ. We have so much to talk about, so let's get started. And Judith, welcome to Women Who Move Nations.
2: Oh, hi, Michelle, and it's great to be here to have a chat about transport, a very passionate subject of mine and and
1: lots to talk about. Absolutely. And I know that you've got a, a long and rich career in public transport, and I look forward to hearing more about that through the podcast. But let's start off with a pretty big question. Can you tell us about your current role and what you're responsible for at Transport Canberra?
2: Sure, Can. So essentially, I have three teams working for me at Transport Canberra. The one team looks after the maintenance and operation of Canberra's bus network. So it's maintained and operated by us as a business, so we don't have any private contractors. But then the Light Rail, which is the next team, manages the private-public partnership uh, contract, um, and that's for the Light Rail Stage 1 that we have at the moment and also the future Light Rail lines that we're building. And then finally, I have a team that is delivering Canberra's future public transport strategy, and some major projects, including uh, delivery of the zero emission transition plan for Canberra and also a next generation ticketing system.
1: Excellent. I want to hear more about that. And I certainly know that Canberra is really uh, one of the leaders in Australia around zero emission buses. And maybe we might hear a bit more about that too. But I wanted to ask you actually about your time in Canberra, which is the capital of Australia. And I know that it's been your home for what, about the last five years? So, I wanted to ask you about what's happening in public transport right now, you know, those priority areas. I know you've touched on what your teams are working on. And what do you think the future looks like for Canberra in public transport?
2: Well, it's quite extraordinary because um, a lot of people said to me, why do you want to go to Canberra when I said I was moving to Canberra and to work for Transport Canberra and City Services? And I'd only been to Canberra once and thought, well, okay, you know, this is a, this is a journey of my career. Let's Let's see what Canberra has to offer. What I found was a really exciting place to both live, but also the stage that Canberra and the ACT are at with their growth in public transport and the development of some really exciting projects. So the things that really excite me at the moment are um, zero emissions, as I mentioned earlier, and the fact that we have this plan, which we're well into now and, and is going really well. We're looking at the future feasibility for um, new depots and, and zero emission depots, brand new ones at the moment, which is really exciting. And we're embarking on our next generation ticketing project, which uh, hopefully very soon we'll be able to announce who our supplier is, and uh, then that will be a very exciting change for Canberrans. But really, the planning for the light rail, and we we've got a model a transport model in Canberra, which is very hub and spoke because. Uh, anybody that is aware of Canberra. It's made up of lots of districts and and then the central parliamentary area and the city. And so we have um, a lot of people that are traveling out of communities in those districts. And so we need to connect um, everybody together. So Light Rail is excellent for that to deliver fast services into those districts in the city. So the future of that um, many stages to come. So Stage one is with us at the moment and people love it. And stage two is on the horizon or at least the beginning of stage two. The other thing that I think is really important is we've got a big focus on customer as well. And Canberra has really intuitively dealt with customers before and we have great customer service on our buses. But now we're looking at it in a much more holistic sense and, and planning to make sure that we're meeting customer satisfaction and Most importantly, growing patronage and looking at mode shift, which is similar to a lot of other cities.
1: It's really interesting to think about. I mean, I remember going to Canberra when the light rail first opened. And wow, I mean, the light rail in Canberra is a fantastic customer experience, right? And I think what's really interesting is that for me, it kind of reflects a real change that certainly we've been seeing in Australia over recent years where there's been a lot more investment And focus on public transport. And it really gets me thinking around, you know, how our industry has developed and changed over time. And I wanted to ask you, you know, given your experience in the industry, you know, I understand you've just celebrated 30 years in public transport, which Judith is just incredible, isn't it? I wanted to ask you about, you know, what are the significant changes that you've seen in your time working in public transport?
2: Yeah, I look back at thirty years, and I think where did that time go? But when I look back, also, I think what fantastic opportunities I've had, and how I've really enjoyed every experience that I've had. It's funny because probably the the biggest, uh, one of the biggest changes that I've, I've seen was not only a, a few um, years after I joined British Rail thirty years ago, and that was uh, the privatization of the railway in the UK, and. That spurned a whole different approach to transport. It looked at things like how we presented our trains and, you know, the 26 rail companies all changed their liveries, got new trains, entered into a massive customer service type of uh, culture. And so that was probably the change that I thought, wow, this is a big change. But having said that, the last 15 years in just in Australia, what I've seen is big shifts in uh, focusing customers. So when I moved to Sydney in 2008, that was uh, when really Railcorp, as it was then, decided that customer was where we needed to focus and operations would support customer rather than operations being king, as it were, at the time. And so customer has been an ongoing change. And I think recently we, we are really focusing on equity And making sure that we're providing what people need to travel. You know, we used to just push services out there for people to get on and use. But now we're actually consulting with people a lot more to understand how they use the service, but not only how, but what they need to use it. And I guess that's where the next big change, which is technology, uh, comes in because how we're shaping that end-to-end journey and this is also the entrance of young people and young people's influence and how they use technology to access what they need. So I think mobility as a service and having that ability to just look at your phone and decide where your endpoint is and then map your journey and just follow that is, is really an incredible change from looking at lots of paper timetables. Back in the UK, I remember you'd have to carry a number of timetables with you and turn the pages to this route and this route. And that was really complicated. So it's simplifying and technologies is also having a massive impact on internal systems. So now we schedule our buses through a very optimal uh, system, which allows us to have a fully integrated network and really makes use of efficiency and effectiveness of how we operate our services. So it's gone a long way to improving transport, but also for the future where we see the next area, which is uh, zero emissions and sustainability, because really zero emissions Is the game changer. And I remember, Michelle, when we were at um, Stockholm in 2018 and we sort of said, this is a line in the sand. Electric vehicles are really the thing that is going to be the big thing uh, that's going to change transport across probably the whole world. And Australia is not obviously quite as advanced as other countries, but we put a plan together um, a couple of years ago and that plan has really uh, held the test of, of the last two years in terms of delivering zero emissions uh, commitment to Canberra. And it's a really exciting. It's something that I would have never expected 30 years ago when I started in transport, that we would be looking at electric buses, electric vehicles, and the way that's going to change so many things that we do in transport for the better. So I, I guess the, the final thing that I thought about, and these, these to me are probably the big Five, I would say. The, the big thing is infrastructure and projects and it is so incredible um, and I'm assuming that a lot of people have seen for Australia the chart that shows um, the growth in infrastructure delivery over the coming years and how that just exponentially is demonstrating how important uh, getting public transport right is for uh, reducing congestion and, and getting people to where they want to go and the demand that people have to uh, to get to places effectively. So that's uh, that. those are really some big changes I think that uh, have been through my career.
1: That's an incredible reflection Judith and thank you so much for sharing. I remember being in Stockholm in 2019 and having that as you say line in the sand moment with that zero emission bus transition and it's incredible to see what's been happening in Australia in the last few years around gearing up for that. I also love your anecdote about being in the UK and the pages of paper timetables. Gee, we've come far and I know that you know there's a there's a lot more that we're going to be exploring in public transport for how people get around. But mentioning the UK, I wanted I guess to hear a bit more about that because your journey started in the UK. You spent what almost 15 years now in Australia. So I wanted to ask you perhaps you could reflect for us for our listeners on your most notable experiences and some of the things that you've learned on the way.
2: Yeah, so I think it's worth pointing out that really for me and and it's it's thinking about it and and looking at looking back, really being in a cutting edge industry is probably the most exciting place to be and transport is no exception, and it's provided some really fantastic experiences. And these these range from uh, probably, uh, for me, working with some really fantastic people, and people in transport seem to be extraordinary in terms of how their passion to work and, and deliver solutions and bounce back when they have setbacks. It's just an amazing place to work. But also then the projects and the things that I've had an opportunity to have a role and and serious role in delivering. So I think moving back to when I was in the UK, you know, I led a customer reform which was prominently uh, announced through a white paper uh, by the government when uh, we'd been privatised for a few years. And all of the 26 uh, rail franchises overnight converted their commercial directors to customer directors in response to the white paper, but I was really lucky. I worked um, at Central Trains, which was in the Midlands, and my boss said to me, we should actually look at this holistically and really uh, have the whole business think about customer. And to me, this was a really important moment, um, probably in my whole career, because it got me realizing that any transport system is not about each individual part, it's about how it all works together. I was a free agent. It was the first time that I'd actually not had lots of people working for me. I could go into each directorate and ask them what they were providing for the customer and how they did that. That included human resources, finance, everywhere, not just the front line. And so it was really exciting because we did increase customer satisfaction um, and we did it through really making customer-centric culture in the business. And that was a game changer. So when I moved to Sydney, Sydney was just about to do the same thing and to, as I mentioned earlier, start to embed a customer culture. And what really struck me about Sydney and Relcorp, as it was in the time was that the staff were already very customer focused and the actual task was to, to bring management along and to, to set really customer charters and customer goals and talk about the things that we need to do as management to improve, or to listen to customers and put some of those actions that they'd wanted us to put in place in place. And so that reform um, saw customer satisfaction grow, and that was probably one of my best experiences in Sydney um, was seeing that that change um, and the people. And that's why I go back to working with people because at the end of the day, it's always the people who deliver what. We want them to deliver, and without the people, then we wouldn't have any any of this future and uh, progression that we see. The next step was soon after the few years that I'd spent um, with the customer uh, focus, I joined CountryLink, and I was really excited about joining CountryLink as their uh, general manager. But within a very short period of time, there was an announcement that the rail RailCorp reform was going to happen. That was in 2013. And so having worked in um, what was City Rail at the time and CountryLink, I got asked to uh, lead the reform for New South What was to become New South Wales TrainLink. And that was exciting on all levels. And that was a, a really fantastic experience in terms of developing the concept of operation and the organisational structure. And, you know, really designing a a new railway, in effect, a new product. And because it had been part of uh, CountryLink and CityRail, there was an awful lot of passion and sentiment around those two different businesses. And CountryLink especially was iconic, and it probably is still iconic for a lot of people. And so there was a massive need to bring on board and engage with lots of people to deliver Uh, what was a really successful outcome and um, is operating still well today. So that that was a real high point for me also. But then getting on to probably more operational um, areas. So uh, when I joined V-Line in 2013, that was really just before the operationalisation of Regional Rail Link. And that was a a new Greenfield line that um, had two new stations at the time, it was the largest infrastructure project and it cost about $4.3 billion, I think, which is, is actually pales into, exi- into insignificance compared to the projects that are underway today and have been completed today. But at the time, it was a big project and critically, we had to deliver the train service to a new line. We'd been a country railway and we had to become more agile Uh, The team had real big challenges in um, getting all of the drivers trained and building a timetable. And that was a really uh, thrilling experience as well. But then moving on to Canberra, obviously, synchronising the delivery of uh, the bus network with Light Rail. So when Light Rail was launched, we launched a whole new bus network. And the timing had to be obviously in parallel because um, the Light Rail actually ran down one of our key rapid route services which meant that overnight we had to uh, switch that that timetable and there were a few moments of um, of stress in that process I've got to say and uh, as a lot of people will look back at it and go oh yes that was a, a tight move but then most projects are like that and I think behind the scenes um, the public see something that goes out and it looks like it's running uh, like clockwork and everybody's peddling away very hard behind the scenes to make it work. But I think really, uh, you know, what have I learned along the way? I've learned that it's really important to enjoy what you do. Uh, Enjoying what you do means that when you go to work, you're primed to um, think positively and use all of your knowledge and experience to do what, you know, your task is. And I think that that's something that... um, that when you've got challenges is really essential because there's no point in in getting to work and and dreading what's coming up for the day. The other thing is, as you go through different projects and different experiences, is consciously building that toolbox of things, approaches to things, processes, how you um, did certain things and how you developed things, how you got over certain problems. So I think that's really important. And to then be able to, move into another position and, and to utilize those um, skills is is really important and the thing that we don't often do is remember and give yourself credit for what you have achieved and remember what you've achieved because a lot of people I think and, and I, I'm like this is once something is done I go yeah well that's what I intended for that to happen and great done move on And we don't celebrate probably as much as we should. So that's probably something that um, we probably need to do more of.
0: If you're enjoying Women Who Move Nations, make sure you follow us on your favourite podcast platforms and rate the show to help more people find us. Follow the Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand to learn more about public transport and to keep up to date with all our events and activities. Our website is pta. ANZ.org. We're also on LinkedIn. Just search Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. And our Twitter handle is PTAANZ underscore. If you have any feedback or questions, please send us an email at info at
1: I 100% agree, Judith, actually. We definitely don't celebrate what we've achieved. That's such a great point. And thank you so much for sharing your journey and some of the experiences you've had. You've had an incredible career so far. I'm um, learning so much about you, actually, even though I've known you for quite a few years. And I think what really strikes me is how many cities that you've lived and worked in. And that's quite common, actually, from people who've kind of come from the UK. We know there's a lot of people from the UK who end up working in Australia. But I wanted to ask you a bit more about that because certainly I know that people working in the public transport industry often do have an opportunity or or a question around whether they might work in another jurisdiction. And I wanted to ask you a bit more about your experience with that how has working in different jurisdictions enriched your experience? I mean, do you recommend working in a different city? And if so, do you have any tips for people looking to move to a new city around how they can ensure their success?
2: So, when I left the UK to come to Sydney, um, I'd only ever worked in one transport organisation for uh, 15 years. And so, when I got to Australia, I really didn't expect that I'd be getting the experience of Traveling around so much, and um, what has unfolded in terms of uh, working in Sydney, Melbourne, uh, and Brisbane, and, and now obviously Canberra. But yes, a lot of people that I've met in Australia they tend to have worked in a lot of different um, organisations. And it's uh, when I when I started from um, Sydney and I moved to Melbourne, I thought I'll take all the knowledge that I have from Sydney and I'll go to Melbourne and you know I'll just translate it over there and I'll explain. What we did and what we did well, and and how I can bring this to to Melbourne. Um, I learned very quickly that that's not the way that you do things, and it's very important to acknowledge that. Um, whilst transport people are very similar, their own networks and how they work can be very very different, and also in different um, jurisdictions, the drivers for how they operate um, and what they do is is very different also. Uh, Even terminology can mean the opposite or there's different terminology used for the very same thing. So what I've got from um, moving through different jurisdictions has been obviously the the wealth of experience and knowledge. But I've also learned that the important thing is to take your experience um, and how you've done things, the processes that you've um, employed, the methods that you use, and actually use those in in that jurisdiction that you're moving to. So what skills you can bring, basically. I'm probably just saying Australians, but across the world, I think people generally aren't keen on you explaining how it was done in another jurisdiction. But embracing the city uh, that you're in uh, and applying yourself to working with the people and seeking their understanding is probably what I'd say is the most important thing. As soon as you get into the hearts and minds of the people and and you you show them that they you're there to actually help with what they're
1: trying to do, then they'll they'll welcome you. It's interesting to reflect Judith actually that point because even though so many cities have common challenges, it really is about local solutions too. I wanted to ask you something else about your career and then I might move on more around your leadership style and hear about that, but I know you've spent the majority of your years in transport in heavy rail customer service and also operations. They're two very different areas. And I know in a lot of the conversations I have, particularly with women, that kind of question around how do you make that kind of jump? So I wanted to ask you, how did that come about for you? Well, it really happened by
2: accident, I suppose. And it was when I was in the UK and I started to um, put the customer reform piece together. And As I said earlier, I realized that it was a holistic sort of plan that I had to put together, which meant that talking to train drivers and conductors about how they were going to provide customer service, which didn't always gel with them. And they didn't always think it was a good idea because they thought that there would be a way for the organization to penalize them if they didn't, they weren't successful, which is a bit of a cultural thing amongst operators. But really it was clear that operations and understanding how operations worked was really key to delivering the best customer service. So all of the, the infrastructure projects that I see happening today, without that customer focus, it's really very difficult to make sure that they're delivered as they're required for, for customers. And I remember there was some work that I did when I was working for SNC Lovelin a few years ago up in Brisbane at the early days of Cross River Rail. And uh, we were doing these day in the life of um, sessions and we had the engineers, we had the designers, we had customer service staff, we had drivers, everybody in the room to work through scenarios. And I think anybody who's experienced that would understand how important how we operate Um, and how we do things crosses the boundary of customer um, planning and operations. But I think for me, I've never claimed to be a specialist in anything. I've always claimed to be a generalist. And what I've tried to do is bring the specialists together and obviously learning over time and understanding um, the differences between uh, what planning do and operations do and, and the tensions that are there but also the tensions between customer and operations and customer and planning. It's really important to understand how to bring those people together. And I guess one of the experiences that, that I had, which which really um, epitomised it, was um, when I was in V-Line and we had a an incident where our, our timetable wasn't working as effectively as it should do. And so we needed to get all of the planning um, and the operations and the customer people together and have a discussion about how we were going to put actions in place to improve it. It was very challenging to create and keep a positive uh, sense of providing solutions. Uh, it was very easy for areas to look at blaming other areas about why things hadn't worked or weren't working well. So I think really a lot of, um, and, and I say women, uh, men tend to be the specialists, although that's that's obviously been very, very stereotypical, but I think as as women, uh, we've got a really great opportunity to actually see things from that distance and be able to work with people to find solutions. That's sort of where I've pitched my uh, my sort of path, I guess. and I definitely feel like I wear a planning operations and uh, customer hats all the time in in whatever I do. and of course safety uh, mustn't forget safety because Uh, that's obviously um,
1: the main factor of whatever we do. Thanks for sharing about that, Judith. It's interesting how you say you kind of fell into it. And I guess that makes me think about, you know, the way that our journeys uh, in our careers can kind of shift and change. And I think we might hear a little bit more about that actually as I ask you some questions. But I wanted to talk to you about your leadership and particularly your leadership style. And I wanted to ask you know, is that something that you've made a conscious decision about or has that evolved over time? And do you have any key leadership practices that you can share?
2: Well, I would like to hope that people would say that I'm a collaborative leader and that's something that I've consciously tried to be. Uh, I like to um, be guiding and supporting people to display and own the delivery of their expertise rather than sort of leading people from the the front and pulling them along my way. So that, that really has been where I focused a lot of my attention. And it's also about ownership because I believe that whilst as senior execs and, and senior managers, we have accountability, we shouldn't remove ownership and responsibility from uh, and members of staff that are doing some critical work. And I remember a time actually when uh, one of my managers actually came to me and said, are you directing me to do this piece of work? And I said, well, do you want me to direct you? And they said, yes. And I said, okay, I'll direct you. But actually directing someone to do something absolves them from taking responsibility. And so my preference is that people do take responsibility and therefore collaborative leadership is about encouraging that rather than directing people. And this all really sparked off years and years ago, way before I actually started in transport. And I was in a working in a design and promotions role in a company. And the company used to do design work, but also a uh, set of ex- exhibitions in big ex- exhibition halls on a regular basis. And my boss used to go out and uh, and supervise this. And he used to want to be really in control of what was happening. So he would direct the team and there would be a crew of of, uh, chippies and electricians and everything and one day he said I'm going to be on leave can you go and you know supervise the crew putting up this stand so you know it was it was a eight meter square stand with a 20 foot boat on it and some building works around some uh, cabinets and things so I said yeah sure and he said well you know they'll want to go for dinner or for breakfast, sorry, so don't don't let them um, do that because that will mean that they might not get the job done in time. And and I've told them what they need to do. So I I went home and I, I, I thought, hold on a minute, this sounds like a very, well, it was a very directoral way of, of operating. And so the next morning when we arrived at the exhibition centre, the, the chippy Mick, I remember him clearly, came up to me and said, you know, um, would it be okay if we go for breakfast? And so I said to him, I said, well, what time are you going to be back? How long are you going to be? And he said, well, will be 40 minutes. And I said, okay, go and take your breakfast. So they came back from breakfast and they worked like troopers for the rest of the day. And I learned that actually if you have people make their decisions and own their decisions, then they will do the best they can because they're doing it because they've made that decision. And it, it seems like a very small thing, but that really set my mind into how I wanted to be collaborative with people and so I guess you know some of the leadership practices I'd say that follow on from that are trying not to tell people what to do which is very difficult for people like me because I am a control freak so quite often I will tell people look I'm a control freak Um, I'm going to give you some thoughts and and I'll let you know where my mind's at but I really want to hear from you So I think being upfront and encouraging people is is really important. Um, And really seeking people's input and ideas about things and not handing work to them that has been already delivered. And a great example of this is recently at at Transport Canberra and City Services, we were uh, drawing together our strategic plan. And I said to the executive group, look, why don't we go down and ask all of the staff how they want to contribute or if they want to contribute to this? Because if we engage them, they will understand what part they play in this bigger strategic plan. So that's what we did. And it actually um, changed how we put the plan together. And one of the biggest things was we visually, on top of the plan, um, had pictures of that represented all of the areas that transport canberra and city services operate in and so instantly people could recognize um, where they fitted into the plan that sort of thing um, is really really important uh, the other thing is is about how we treat staff so collaboration and working together is is about having a, a really good respect and understanding for staff and it's about not accepting uh, blame cultures And it's about treating people correctly when things have gone wrong. And what I mean by that is when things go wrong, as they generally do from time to time, it's about really making sure that we take learnings and um, and improvements from incidents. And we don't just focus on what's happened and berating um, individuals for what's happened. And many years ago, I came up with another saying, which is the kick is the gift. And that originated from me seeing um, a TV program where there was a a guy who was interviewing this really old martial arts expert. And the martial arts expert was going, you know, kick me, here, kick me in the, in the belly, kick me here and I'll show you uh, the kick is the kick is the gift. And um, what he was saying was, it's only when you kick me that I can show you what I can do and my skills. And so now I say to people, when something goes wrong, the kick is a gift, which basically means if something goes wrong, what are you going to do that's good out of it? How are you going to turn it around to be something that's going to improve? That's what I talk to people about when they're concerned that they might have done something wrong. It's like, we'll deal with what went wrong, but also let's look at how we can make something good come out of that.
1: Thanks for sharing that, Judith. Really fascinating reflections, I think, on some of your experiences I wanted to ask you a bit about imposter syndrome, actually. I feel like we might have had a conversation about this maybe a couple of years ago around confidence for women. And I wanted to ask you whether you had any advice for women who are experiencing imposter syndrome and do you have any tips on how to handle situations when you're doubting yourself or your confidence is low?
2: Yeah, look, I think... I would expect that a, a lot of women do experience imposter syndrome at some point. Me being a total continual self analyst, I question everything that I do um, most of the time. So I'm always checking on myself and, you know, whether I'm good enough, whether I did things the best way that I could have. So I really understand the challenges of how it can feel to be in a sort of downward spiral of self doubt. But I think the the way that I deal with it, and I think um, my advice would be treating it in a practical sense. So, tips such as developing positive and not negative self-talk. For every negative thought, provide a counter-positive thought, and that that's really uh, about probably having some already ideas in your head about the things that you've done well. And you know, we went we talked about um, making sure that we celebrated things that we've achieved and actually writing those things down and reminding yourself that you've actually achieved some fantastic things is the best way to combat imposter syndrome and, and make yourself think more positively. I'd also say it's really important to find a buddy or probably a coach as well um, if you can to, to work it through because it is a practical thing. It doesn't need to sort of take over your whole life. It's just something that has to be managed as you as you work through your career and it should be minimalised uh, rather than seen as a big issue. That's sort of my, my thoughts.
1: Thanks, Judith. I have never heard this term but it really got to me, continual total self-analyst. <laughs> I love that and I can relate actually and I'm sure a lot of our listeners relate to that as well. But um, great advice. I've just got two questions left and they're the kind of usual questions that we wrap up with you've had such an impressive career. I'm interested to know, do you plan your career or have you just seized the opportunities that have come along the way?
2: I've been thinking about this and and I'd actually say that my career has been based on a lucky four-leaf clover theory. (laughs) And and where that comes from is that I have this strange ability to spot four-leaf clovers. And so this has been at points in my career where I've decided to make a change or I think maybe I should make a change. And where this fits in is that really a four-leaf clover represents luck. And luck to me is where preparation meets opportunity. And so throughout my whole career, I think um, the things that have been most important uh, for me in my next steps have been to always be scanning where I am, what I'm doing, what I'd like to do, what the opportunities are and being ready for them. And so that's where really all my moves have been. Well, don't ever say never say never is, is probably one of the things that, that I would say. And certainly when I moved from the UK to Sydney, it was, well, why would you turn an opportunity down? And I was ready. I was prepared. I'd, I'd been working hard on, on customer service and I knew that I could add some real benefit. And I suppose actually acknowledging that and, um, thinking ahead without planning what position you want to be in is
1: sort of where my uh, career has led me. Fascinating. And thank you for sharing that you haven't planned your career. I know that actually a lot of our listeners uh, will feel better hearing that um, because not everyone has a career plan, although many of the women I've interviewed on this podcast actually do have one. Last question, Judith. What advice do you have for younger women or people early in their careers who are listening to this podcast? I guess heading off from the last question is that I
2: would be cautious about planning too strictly what your career should be because you may miss opportunities that might not sit well with your rigid plan if you have a rigid plan. So um, really have that long-term focus but welcome opportunities and don't get fixed into what you want to do and, and miss those. The other thing I would say is really taking every experience as a valuable learning, the good ones and the bad ones, because you will have good experiences and you will have bad experiences. Establishing your purpose, that's really, really important for me to understand that I, I never wanted to be an expert in anything, but I wanted to be a generalist and I wanted to really coordinate um, or be an orchestrator of people that had expertise to deliver the outcome. And so really trying to understand what your purpose is and what what drives you, what what keeps you um, interested and motivated is really, really important. And then comes authenticity. And we talk about this a lot, but I actually think if you're trying to be something that you're not, that is the hardest thing that you can do and will wear you down the most. So really making sure that you link in with your own authenticity and your own beliefs and values is really, really critical. But I suppose I'd like to end on something which happened to me a few years ago, where I was in a leadership conference, a women's leadership conference, and I was thinking, I'm in this male-focused operational environment. How do I get to be chosen for a job? There was an opportunity to ask questions, and I put my hand up and I said, basically, I'm in this environment, male-dominated. How how do I get a job? So the the speaker said, well, you go and ask. And so um I was actually working for Andy Byford at the time. He was my boss. And he was he was back in the UK where he came from. And I messaged him and I said, Andy, I've been three years in the job that I'm in. I really think I've done as much as I can in that job and I'm I'm really ready to move on. Would you consider me for this role that I see is vacant? Anyway, three months later I was in that that new job and it was because I asked. So I would say don't wait. <laughs> Make sure you ask if there's something that you really
1: want. Judith, that was gold advice. I love that. Thank you so much. We're at the end of the podcast. And I just wanted to say you have been so open, so honest, so transparent. Thank you so much for joining us and um, sharing your insights, as I've said. And goodbye. Thanks, Michelle. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. This series is produced by Dylan Adler and Sophia Dickinson for the Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. To find out more, please visit our website, ptaanz.org. Tune in for more soon.